the USDA looks at the, the long-term picture. They look at technology and go, okay, we see where this is going. We realize it needs a little more help and it's going to take some time. And so that's what they do. They take the big picture and they allow you to take long-term projects and make them work. Ask questions, be open, be willing to accept new ideas. Today, we are excited to welcome Dr. Jim Thompson on the podcast. Jim is a research geneticist for the USDA working to improve crops. Welcome, Jim. Hi, guys. Hi. Great. So tell us, what does it mean to be a research geneticist? Well, at the USDA, a research geneticist can uh, tackle many different issues, uh, obviously related to DNA. Um, some people are into breeding, uh, they track genes through, uh, primer design. Other people work on disease resistance. I'm more of a, a gene jockey, if you will, a mechanic of DNA. I, uh, I, I build, uh, DNA constructs and I make transgenic plants. And I know that sounds a little, uh, Frankensteinian and, and people get a little, uh, wiggly when I talk about it. But it's, um, it, we do this in a precise fashion. Uh, we're looking to do specific uh, surgical engineering of the genome, if you will. So that's pretty much what I work on. I concentrate uh, more or less on citrus, uh, mainly because of the citrus greening disease that's going on right now, uh, which is affecting Florida much more than is California at this point, but it's moving. Um, and we're working on disease resistance to help out the citrus trees. So that's pretty much what I'm working on in a nutshell. That is so cool. So correct me if I'm wrong, but are these transgenic crops the same thing as GMOs? Yes, that is the exact same thing. Genetically engineered or genetically modified organisms, depending on the acronym you like to use. Okay. And I know that there's some resistance to GMOs just in general um, with people not wanting to buy GMO food at the grocery store. Can you explain what, why people might have that reaction and uh, whether or not GMOs are actually safe? I mean, I think they're safe, but do you have a way to sort of explain that to people? Ooh, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's, that's more of an emotional response, I believe, than it is a logical response. Um, I could talk to somebody that's against GMOs, just a gut response against GMOs. I could explain to them all day what it is, and they would still be against it. It's, it's a personal preference as far as I can tell. Um, are they safe? Um, yes. I mean, they go through, uh, they go through APHIS, which is the USDA branch of deregulation for transgenics. They go through um, FDA. Uh, Federal Drug Administration, they go through EPA sometimes, and they really get put through the ringer, if you will. I mean, these guys really study every little nook and cranny that you can believe before they turn them loose to the uh, general public. And they think of things that haven't even been thought of yet to look for. So are they safe? Yeah, they're, they're, 
probably safer than the trees that get bred out in the field that got that uh you know ma and pa put together themselves okay yeah that makes a lot of sense because it's just um the dna that you're sort of messing with of the plants and everything that we eat has its own set of dna anyway so it to me it sort of seems like people get scared about oh like uh, I don't know, the DNA has been messed with or mutated or something like that. But really, in reality, that's um, the truth about all organisms that we eat, which is all of our food. That's a very good point, Madison. It really is. A, a lot of people, it's it's the lack or I, I hate to say the lack of education, but it really is the lack of education for people not realizing that everything has DNA in it. My um, I, going through, Even going through uh, grad school myself, um, and I said, told my mom, I'm going to go work in plants. I'm going to go, I'm going to do some, uh, I want to go work and, uh, make plants better. You know, I had no idea what I was doing back then, but I knew I wanted to make them better. Um, and my mom, seriously, she looks at me and she goes, plants have DNA. I'm like, yeah, 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 they do. And see that that's, but that's the kind of educational roadblock that we have right now. It's, um, people don't realize that like, take for example, your, your Pomeranian dog right? Those are wild dogs. And that Pomeranian is directly related to the uh, Great Dane down the street, even though they're like 200 pound difference. You wouldn't think they were the same animal, but they started from the same thing and people have bred them and bred them. And that's genetic engineering too. So um, it's just all the way you put it in perspective, I suppose. That's a really good point. Um, I can totally see how something that doesn't look like us or it sometimes doesn't even look like an organism can be uh, misconstrued as not having DNA. Um, yeah, I found it really surprising back whenever I learned that um, fungi are more closely related to us than plants. And I was like, "What? how is that even possible? Um they're just this really abstract organism in my mind. But yeah, once you sort of start to learn about the tree of life and how things are related, I think that that opens up your mind about DNA and genetic engineering a lot more, at least in my case. Yeah, I can see that. It, it's definitely a, uh, how you perceive. And I mean, a lot of it is just purely background. Uh, if you got brought up in a time where DNA was kind of a abstract concept you you can't really wrap your mind around it i mean you know take for example a cell phone it's like you know i i give a cell phone to my grandparents and they're like what is this and <laughs> i'm like it's a phone and they're like no it's not <laughs> so I, it, it all depends on where you come from and and how you look at it so yeah that's a really good analogy jim you know us being graduate students we're definitely really familiar with, uh, you know, the university labs, how research groups operate. For you, we were curious uh, at like the USDA ARS, what does your typical workday look like? Like, what do you do on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis? Well, it's very similar to the university system. I mean, it's, it's all, um, there's the big picture project that we look at. Um, our lab, that, uh, a collaborator of mine, Roger Tilmany and myself, we work together on developing uh, genetic engineering tools, but I'd say one of the main differences between the USDA and the universities is that the USDA is very applied. It's very applied science. It's 
what can we get out to the farmers? What can we get out to the commercial uh, production? What can we get into the hands of the consumers as quickly as possible? Um, universities, they do a lot of great research and they dig into the basics of science. It's like, how does this work? Why does this work? You know, what, you know, what makes this tick? Uh, the USDA, on the other hand, is more like, okay, we know this ticks this way. Now, how can we apply it to help other things to tick better? It, you know, for a very just general example. Um, but, you know, from day to day, it's all the same stuff, right? I mean, you come to work, you do your research, you, you test your hypotheses, um, you know, you fill out your paperwork, you go home. So it's uh, it's very similar to a, to a university setting. So how did you originally get interested in this kind of applied work? And how did you find your way to working with the USDA? Huh, that's a good question. How did I find my way to that? <laughs> that's um, a pretty broad question. Yeah, um, but um, I feel like sometimes people gravitate more towards either applied work or basic uh, scientific research was it like that for you, or were you always interested in these sort of topics? I'm um I like to tinker. I I like I was in my previous life I was a, a cabinet builder and I like to assemble and put things together. And so very early on in high school when I saw that DNA could be manipulated, and I always loved science. It just all kind of clicked together for me. It's just like oh I know what I want to do for the rest of my life. You know I want to work with DNA. So I always gravitated toward applied just because I liked um, putting things together. I liked to build. I liked uh, making new and novel constructs and things and, you know, uh, to see how they worked and improve uh, the existing technology. It just, it, I don't know, it, it just worked for me. So I don't know if I can go much further than that. Sorry. No, no, that makes a lot of sense that... I've actually talked to a lot of other people who um, are either artists or builders and those sort of skills, I, I, it must be something in our brains that that trans, translates over to scientific research really well because you have to have the creativity in order to design experiments. And then, um, yeah, sort of that like uh, putting pieces together of the puzzle, that sort of intrigue that gets you, that's really at the heart of science oh, i feel that's like a good one too. yeah the intrigue the how does this these pieces fit together yeah that's a good one right there sorry i never really thought about it too much i just always gravitated to science yeah so i guess on the topic of your work um you know you've told us about like what in general you work on what are like the biggest problems that some of our crops face well i'm more versed in the uh, in citrus than I am pretty much anything else at this point because I've been spending the last 10 years of my life working on it. Um, citrus has a number of various uh, diseases that like to go after it. Um, Hong Long Bing, citrus greening, is by far the worst uh, disease right now. It, uh, it came from uh, China originally, we believe, uh, and it's basically it's become pandemic it's spread pretty much around the globe and um so that that's that's the one big thing that i'm focused on right now is trying to find disease resistance genes and that's not my job 
that's that again once again i'm i'm just a genetic engineer i i help people put things together there's much smarter people than myself out there looking for the actual disease resistance genes um that will fight off this uh this uh particular uh problem and um they're making progress and once they start getting some of these genes together then i'm going to uh help assemble uh these things and we're going to transform them into citrus. Now, that that sounds simple enough when I say it. We're going to transform citrus, but that's actually one of the bigger downfalls of working with citrus right now. There's there's probably I'd say roughly 50 different cultivars uh, that are uh, commercially uh, sold around the world, um, and I could be off by quite a few numbers right there. But uh, just an example, they but there's only about a handful literally five different cultivars that can probably be easily transformed and maybe a couple more after that they're that a little more difficult so what i'm trying to say is that there's a lot even if we get the disease resistance genes or gene tomorrow um they may not be able to get it into citrus to be able to make the modifications because the technology doesn't exist yet to transform uh to allow you to modify the dna of the uh elite cultivars that are out there. Um, a perfect example of that would be um, uh, your cutie. Everybody knows what a cutie is, right? Your, your favorite little um, your uh, favorite little tangerine that everybody, easy to peel, nice and sweet. Yeah. Trying to transform that and putting uh, a fresh bit of DNA in there that has a disease resistance gene is near on impossible. Um, I believe a group in Florida is making progress on it. Um, but they're taking it all the way down to individual cells and uh, rebuilding a tree from a, a single, pro, what they call a protoplast, all the way back up to a tree again. And that's very time consuming and difficult. Um, so those are some of the some of the issues that we're uh, facing right now is one, we don't have the disease resistance gene in hand or more than one. We're not even sure. And then once we do trying to actually get it into the trees themselves is probably the second really big hurdle that we have um, in citrus. Um, there's other, yeah, I mean, obviously there's other species out there that are people working on. My uh, collaborator, Roger Tilmany, he works, uh, he's big on to, in rice and, um, and uh, wheat. So he works in uh, monocots. So I work in dicots, that big split in the family there. Um, but yeah, I, I couldn't tell you what disease resistance he works on because there's so many different things that you could look at. So, uh, did I answer the question? I hope. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I know you work on something called founder lines. Is this related to uh, getting these disease resistance genes into citrus? Ah, uh, yes, that's that's what my biggest push right there, Madison. Um, <laughs> Thanks for bringing it up. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, um, when I work with a, when I do genetic engineering, I, I mentioned earlier we work with a uh, enzymes that are very precise in the manner in which they manipulate DNA. So they can cut and paste DNA without the gain or loss of any DNA at all. No, no random little nibbly bits um, coming or going in this case. Uh, when I say surgical, I mean very, very surgical, very precise in the way these enzymes work. But to do that, they actually have to have specific DNA sequences, uh, an address, if you will, for them to recognize so that they can actually perform their uh, 
DNA manipulation operation. operation. Um, and so we build transgenic citrus that have these sites in them, what do we call then founder lines. These founder lines then become the beginnings for DNA, or yeah, DNA manipulation down the road. So they become the site that is analyzed. We know everything about it in the genome because we engineered it in. We know we put it in a good location. We know we didn't do anything to harm the plant's native DNA. And now we have a good landing pad for adding more DNA in at a later time. The technology also allows us to remove the selectable markers. So a lot of the times you do genetic engineering, you have to add a resistance gene. Um, so antibiotics such as canamycin is being used to put DNA in. It allows us to select for the process to happen. So of the you know hundreds of thousands of cells that you work with trying to manipulate, a handful will actually uh, integrate properly in the fashion you want. And so you have to select them back via the catamycin or antibiotic resistance gene. Now, people don't want that in their fruit at the end of the day. Okay, understandable. I get that. So that's the way that we've designed our system is the fact that we can actually integrate DNA in using these specific enzymes, which are called recombinases, by the way. And then they actually can remove the, uh, the selectable marker in a second round of uh, manipulation. So we can put it in, select for it, get what we want, get where we want it to be, do all the double checking and, and molecular biology that you want. You can look at the plants uh, in the field even if you want. Then you bring them, bring them back to the lab a second time. We remove the selectable marker, again, in a precise fashion. And then you got a commercial, commercially viable plant that has no selectable markers and just that disease resistance gene or genes or whatever you wanted to put in there is in the genome. Wow. Okay. I had no idea that you could, I, I knew that you could put a selectable marker into an organism, but I had no idea that you could take it out again and still have those disease resistance genes. Ta-da. <laughs> yep. That's what we're working on. Uh, I've been working the last 20 years of my life trying to perfect that system. You asked earlier, you asked earlier, Nathan, what is the big difference between the uh, USDA or the government, it was the USDA, um, and uh, university uh, setting? Here's one of the biggest things, and it just occurred to me. The USDA will allow scientists to do long-range, um, long-term projects that would never fly in the university system mainly because of the grants, right? I mean, you got to show progress with your grants uh, in order to renew your grants. Those grants are renewed every year to every five years, depending. And it has literally taken me 15, going on almost 20 years of my life now to perfect this founder line uh, technology in order to get it to work properly. And a university system would never have uh, allowed that to occur not because they didn't like the technology, but because the, the, the funding just would have dried up and gone away. The USDA looks at the, the long-term picture. They look at, at technology and go, okay, we see where this is going. We realize it needs a little more help and it's going to take some time. And so that's what they do. They take the big picture and they allow you to take long-term projects and make them work. And I have to thank the USDA. If it wasn't for them, this this project would have never gotten off the ground, and it's now about ready to hit the fields. Wow! So you've been working on this, you know, these founder lines pretty much since 
right after you graduated from graduate school, right? I I started with working on the uh, recombinase technology while I was in grad school, and I got a postdoc at the University of California, Berkeley, which was associated with the USDA, to continue working on the recombinase technology. And they said, my, my, my PI at the time said, Jim, we like the technology, and he, he worked on it himself. His name is David Al, and he worked on the technology as well. And he says, but the technology is all patented up at this point in time. These specific enzymes, we can't use them. I need you to go find us more. And so that I spent five years of my life finding new recombinase enzymes, which I then uh, characterized to see, okay, they come from, let's start, let's start from the, the beginning. They start from, the recombinases come from bacteria and phages. These are viruses that attack bacteria. So uh, prokaryotes, if you will, um, how to find these enzymes. Then we had to check to make sure they still worked in, um, in plants. So then we had to de develop systems to test them in plants. Then we had to code and optimize them to make them work better. Then we had to actually develop systems in which to use the, the native uh, activity of these new recombinases. So, yeah, I've been working on recombinases for a really, really long time. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. I think you could probably speak to the fact that science is a slow process better than a lot of people. <laughs> um, but it's nice. It's sort of refreshing to hear that even though these things take so long, um, the USDA is really focused on solutions. And it's it's a solution-oriented sector of the government. And I love universities, and I wouldn't be a student at one if I didn't. But um, yeah, that's that's really nice that it's not just, okay, the, the timeline of your grant is over. Let's move on to something else. Um, yeah, that's that's really great to hear. Yeah, they, uh, yeah. They, they're, they're very much uh, public-oriented. They really want to do what's best for the general public uh industry as well i mean they they really push to uh get things again applied out to the general public or the industry or commercialization it's they're not a money-making business but they are there to help others um in any way they can i you know i got a lot of respect for the usda yeah i mean you know they're a great organization uh earlier you mentioned uh you know some of the earlier enzymes being patented do so for these you know biological things like do the patents work the same way as other items like a vacuum or like a laptop or something like that almost exactly there's a there's a few caveats in there which i probably shouldn't speak to because i'm not much of a lawyer but i know that in certain if you take a wild species or a wild enzyme i think it's not patented but I, I, I shouldn't even I shouldn't even comment because I'm I could be completely off on that one, but yeah, the the patenting process pretty much works the same whether it's a vacuum or an enzyme, um, and they will hold it for 17 years, uh, and then it becomes public domain, and that's really what we're doing right now is a a lot of the original enzymes that were patented, um, Cree C R E being one of them, um, have now come off patent. Um, and they are available for use by the general public, which is pretty good because that's 
still to this day the best recombinase enzyme out there and it's pretty much the gold standard that I hold all my other recombinases up to. Very cool. Um, so you're working on genetic engineering to sort of save citrus from this disease um, or find a way to protect it from this disease. Are there any traits that can be genetically engineered to make citrus more valuable than it is now or just sort of change its value on the markets? Anything with taste or color or anything like that? Oh, yeah. There's, I mean, there's, I mean, if you can think, if you can think of it, it, it can be done pretty much genetically. Um, you could make uh, uh, limes, for, exa uh, for example. They're very cold intolerant. Uh, lemons as well. If you could make them more cold tolerant, that would be uh, that would be a value added trait right there. But that would be more for the farmers. Um, you sometimes you want to put a value added trait just for the customer it's themselves. And that's actually a project that we've been working on for about the past five years. And um, we, how to explain this one? We know we, uh, this, that's the royal we, by the way, uh, the scientific community, the USDA, the general, uh, the farmers even know that transgenics is most likely going to be the route is going to have to be taken in order to quote unquote, save the citrus industry. Um, and I'm not saying there isn't breeding efforts going on. There is very good breeding efforts going on. Um, whether or not they can get done in time is the question. I mean, it takes anywhere from five to 20 years to make a citrus tree flower. So you can see the uh, breeding issues that you have right there. Um, but the, the scientific community fairly well knows that it's going to be a transgenic that's going to be required to save the citrus industry in at least the short term. Um, the general public, again, is resistant to transgenics and with good reason. They're, they're still new and um, there's, uh, I don't want to say there's anything to be feared, but I mean, it's the unknown, I guess, is, is, the, is the fear factor there. Um, so we came up with an idea. And um, this was uh, put together with myself and the Citrus Research Board of California, who, by the way, have been a big sponsor of the research I've been doing. I have to tip my hat to this organization. They've been a, a big fan of my, my research, and they've supported me with um, uh, many people and, and much money. Um, but we came together with an idea that we really should get something out on the market before we get a disease resistance gene out there. Because two things, a disease resistance gene you can't see. And again, that's it plays into the unknown factor, the scare factor of the general public not understanding what's going on and being resistant. All right, so we sat down, we go, well, what does the general public like? I mean, they like taste, right? They like color, they like things that are bright and shiny, that catch the eye, something that's pretty. So we're sitting there and we're thinking about it. And we came up with the idea that why don't we get something that's not going to be too outrageous, but something that will catch people's eye. So we came up with the Mexican lime. I'm back to the little, the little Mexican limes. Those little green Mexican limes that you use for key lime pies, that you use for decorating dishes, and they're also so good in margaritas. 
and you slice one of these little bad boys open and they're green green on the inside. So we said, well, what if we took the anthocyanin gene, that would be the, the gene that turns the blood orange purple. What if we took the anthocyanin gene and moved it from the blood orange and put it into the Mexican line? And then wow, we could have that would be green on the outside and purple on the inside. Exactly. And if that doesn't catch your eye, nothing will, because that color pops. That is a real you slice one of those things open and you're like, holy macaroni. Plus it's like a surprise for people too. I mean, do you market it like that or it do is it just up to people to find out <laughs> when they cut oh, it yes. open? <laughs> Yeah. Surprise. Look what you got. Uh, no, we will. We, it, it, when it goes to market, we're, we're hoping to come up with a catchy name. Uh, right now, the going name is Lilac Limes, just because it's uh, we got everything from a very light, pale pink um, all the way to something as dark as a char, uh, not a Chardonnay, uh, a Syrah, um, something real dark purple, like a wine uh, color. So there uh, we've got we've got everything in between. Um, but we decided we wanted to put that out there for the general public as something they could see. They could they could literally see it, touch it. They could experience it. They knew what was coming in front of them. Um, they could love it. They could hate it. They could just so long as they got used to it so that they were willing to talk about it. So they were willing to be exposed to it. That was the really the whole idea behind the behind the lilac limes is that we we went through the process of genetically engineering a Mexican lime using DNA from another citrus species, so a direct relative. We took the DNA from it and we found precise control elements, those are called promoters, that only expressed in the fruit itself. So the whole tree wasn't turning purple, it was just the inside of the fruit. So that when you slice it open, you got, like you said, a nice green on the outside and a pretty purple on the inside. And we did this on purpose so that people could look at it and they could experience it. Um, once again, it, it didn't matter if they, they loved it or hated it or, you know, they wanted to share it to their friends or, or, or throw it outside. It, it, it just it was something for them to um, bring their attention to the fact that transgenic citrus is coming. And we wanted them not to be scared when it, the disease resistance genes actually did get put in the field. So, yes. Value-added traits are uh, definitely uh, something that we're working towards, uh, the lilac line being the, the front runner in that, but there's other other things that we could do as well. Um, I know some people uh, have interested in um, flavonoids from other species, such as like, um, say, a blueberry or a raspberry. They're talking about cross-engineering that into other berries or possibly citrus. Um you got the value added trait that's been put into uh, both rice and banana now. And the, have you heard? Have you heard of the golden rice? Yeah, yeah, that's a value added trait right there. And you can see it because when you when you uh, when the rice obviously is a gold color, and when you slice open the banana itself, it's a nice golden color on the inside as well. And that one definitely has some good health benefits as well. So that was an. You know, I come back to my lilac lime again, my favorite topic of the day. Um, that one has because all that purple is anthocyanin, so that's a health benefit as well as a pretty color. So, uh, in my, as far as I'm concerned, that's a win-win. When you talk about going to market, how does that work? How does like the USDA communicate with the farmers to actually, you know, get the 
plant the new transgenic plant grown in some capacity and then eventually get it to like be sold in an actual store well that's a very long road there um first we have to get it uh first we have to test the trees to make sure that they're what what they've been added to uh, has not affected their commercial production all right so first off do they still produce like a normal tree all right so that's why we put number a number of them out there we all select the best of the best okay once we find something that actually works properly um, at a production level that's acceptable uh, we have to go through what's called a deregulation process so you have to go to APHIS um, BRS that's a USDA facility and they will look at all the genetics behind it and they will decide whether or not they feel that's acceptable or not acceptable um, if they feel it's acceptable they'll give you a, uh, a deregulation for the DNA portion of it then you have to go to the Food and Drug Administration because it's a food and then you have to run through all the toxicology screens and make sure that no novel um, antibodies or not an antigens um, things that make people sick, uh, um, allergies. Uh, I, I, you know, I can't even think of everything that they would go uh, make you do yet because I'm not even at that stage. But they make you go through all the toxicology studies to make sure that there's nothing that is harmful for eating. Um, and that's a very long process by itself. And then, of course, if there's a uh, some sort of insect or disease resistance gene in there, we'd have to go through EPA as well, so the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, once you got the okay from all three agencies, then you'd have to pair up, uh, your research with a, uh, farmer or a group that was interested in promoting, uh, what you had to sell. And so in this case, I've been working with the Citrus Research Board, who obviously has a lot of, uh, connections with farmers and nurserymen. And then we get them on board, get them on board and they can start marketing it themselves. And so at that point, it becomes a uh, commercialization issue and it really comes out of our hands and it goes toward the uh, the farmers and the growers at that point to uh, make it go somewhere. But it's a long road. That does sound like a long road indeed. <laughs> so many steps, um, but it makes a lot of sense because it's what we're eating and people not only want to be eating tasty food, but also food that's good for us and nothing that's dangerous. Exactly. And they are very good about that, by the way. The the FDA, the EPA, and APHIS are all very good. And they're, they're good groups of people to work with too. They they really, they'll, they'll talk to you. It's not... I know a lot of scientists get very concerned about having to work with the uh, deregulation. And, you know, I've worked with these guys for a couple of years now, and they've all been really willing to talk to you and explain, you know, you need to do this, Jim, if you want to get through this. And if you don't provide this kind of data, we can't help you get to the next step. And so they literally will tell you, this is what you need to move forward. And, you know, then it's up to you to figure out whether or not you meet those standards. So it's not like it's, it, it's some uh, big black box for you to go through. They, they really take you through baby steps to help you uh, get to the next level, if you will. Yeah, that sounds really awesome. And lots of collaboration amongst different types of people doing different jobs. Um, and speaking of collaboration, so you mentioned before that citrus greening disease is um, a really big issue in Florida. And so... 
are you collaborating with people from Florida or maybe other areas on a regular basis about the work that you do? Do you share data with other scientists or work on projects with them? Or is it more um, localized, the work that you do? Oh, no, I work, I work with scientists um, in Florida and uh, in Texas are some of my biggest collaborators. And uh, the, the citrus greening disease and the citrus industry is probably one of the biggest collaboration of scientists that I've ever experienced in my life. There's, there's probably well over 100 people that get together on a regular basis. And, and it's whether it's a webinar or we get together in a, at a conference and we, uh, we, we share data, uh, we share ideas, we beat each other's uh, silly ideas up and try to improve upon them. And, you know, it's, you know, I, I say that in all jest, but, you know, it's the truth. I mean, you come up with an idea and, and people will, will, will say, no, no, it won't work because of, you know, X, Y, and Z. But if you try ABC, maybe that will work. And so it, it's not like there are people out there just to, you know, bang you down. No, they're, they're there to hold you up and, and try to give you a better suggestions. So no, it's, it's a really big collaboration. I, um, I work ex, uh, extensively with, uh, uh, Ed Stover in, uh, Florida, Fort Pierce. Um, he's pretty much my mentor in the uh, citrus industry. He's taught me so much on, uh, what citrus can and can't do. Um, all the transformation techniques on how to work with citrus. I learned really from Ed's lab. Um, I have another collaborator in Texas, uh, Eliezer Lozada, and he has taught me so much about how to grow citrus and the breeding of citrus that, you know, it makes my head spin and, and it also teaches me how much I don't know. So, you know, if it wasn't for these collaborative efforts, my, my project would be, you know, back in the stone ages somewhere. So, yeah, we uh, we work together regularly. We share a lot of data. We uh, we give each other ideas. We share uh, disease resistance genes uh, when possible. Um, um, yeah, it's 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 a good group of people. It sounds like it. Yeah, I've gotten to know some of the people who work on citrus here at UCR, and um, yeah, it it just seems like a really a dynamic group of people and a problem that is so prevalent, but also changing. I mean, I see new news come out all the time about um, technologies that are being developed, techniques that growers can use to help prevent against citrus. I mean, it in no way does it seem like the scientists who are working on this problem are sitting around and sort of waiting for the next thing. It seems like there's always something new. And that gives me a lot of hope as just someone who lives in California and around a lot of citrus. Um, I'm sure it's the same for um, a lot of other people as well. Oh, yeah. The, uh, and it's not even just the scientists. The farmers are stepping up, too. They're really they're trying a lot of different techniques and uh, and management practices and they're coordinating their efforts. So if a um, for example, if they if they uh, 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 if one of the psyllids, one of the bugs that actually transmits the HLB disease, is found in um, California, they will, uh, in, especially in the growing regions, they will go and they will coordinate. The farmers will coordinate in that area 
uh, and they will do a mass spray around that area to wipe out anything that may be uh, one of the little bugs and they'll they'll take it down and then if they happen to find a tree that actually has a the disease in it they will take out trees all that tree and and many other trees all the way around it whether it's on you know this guy's property or that guy's property they really were are working together to keep this um to keep this disease under control um i have to tip my hat to those guys they uh they've really come together um also with management practices they've uh, they've changed their fertilization uh practices their watering practices they've really i mean they've they've stepped up their whole game to manage this particular disease and they're making some very good progress they're keeping their trees alive a lot longer than they uh, they should uh, under disease conditions. So, yeah, there it's a uh, it's it's been a big coordinated effort. Um, I know the uh, the Citrus Board has got had a lot to do with it. I know the uh, California um, um, Ag Commission has had a lot to do with it. There's been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of coordinated effort, a lot of talking, and a lot of communications has been going back and forth pretty much with everybody to uh, manage this problem. And they've done a good job at it. Yeah, that's incredible how many different people are involved in this coordinated effort. Um, and so sort of going along with needing to communicate with all these growers and scientists and um, government officials, what does your typical work day look like? Or do you even have a typical work day? <laughs> it sounds like you're engaged in a lot of different activities in any given day. Uh, there is no typical work day. <laughs> every day I come, every day I come to work and I plan on getting, I plan on getting X, Y, and Z done. And I open up my computer and oh no, I, I'm doing A, B, and C instead. So <laughs> whether 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 it's uh, communicating with postdocs and getting uh, ideas run through the mill, or it's dealing with uh, USDA paperwork because we are the government, by the way, we do have a lot of paperwork or it's, you know, going out to the greenhouse and making sure that the watering system isn't broken. There is no typical days around this place, but you know, <laughs> it, it keeps it interesting. I'll tell you, I'll tell you that much. Yeah. Yeah. So do you do, um, field work and lab work for oh, yeah. your research? I do it all. I do it all where I'm, I'm running down. I've got field trials right now down in uh, Southern California. So I'm, I'm running down there on a regular basis to collect samples and check on the trees and make sure everybody's growing properly. And, and, you know, everything is protected the way it's supposed to be that the APHIS permits allow me to have under very, very strict conditions. And we are trying to follow that to the letter of the law, but that means somebody's got to go out there and check it on a regular basis. Luckily, the group down there is doing a very good job of that. Um, but, you know, I still need to go down and check it out myself. So I'm, I'm running back and forth. And, you know, I'm out in the greenhouse. I'm at the lab bench whenever I can be because I'm a trained molecular biologist, geneticist. That's what I love to do. So I still try to get at the bench when I can. But no, 90% of the time I'm stuck here behind the computer filling up papers and writing manuscripts and and you know, responding to other people's, uh, questionnaires. Wow. Sounds like a really varied, uh, list of tasks you've got. You know, I'm sure Madison and I are both getting familiar with just coming into work and just finding a bunch of other stuff plopped up on our 
plate that we have to go deal with now as well. Oh, don't worry. Why don't you get out of your postdoc? You'll be doing what I'm doing. Oh, eventually, sure enough. <laughs> you know, you're involved with a lot of great work with the USDA, but uh, I think it'd be good to, you know, remind our listeners that, you know, the people we talk with for our interviews are also involved in other things besides work. Uh, what hobbies or activities uh, do you find yourself involved with outside of your work in research? Huh. Um, well, like I said, I was a, a cabinet builder in a previous life, so I still like to do a lot of woodwork. So that's that's one of my hobbies, and it's uh, turned into the endless rebuilding of the house hobby. So that's that's one of my hobbies. Uh, the other one is the uh, is bike riding. That's that's my real passion right there. I like uh, long distance bike rides. So I'll go every weekend and I'll try to get in 50 or a hundred mile bike ride at some point in time and go climb a mountain or two and, and just, you know, get all my frustrations and aggressions and put myself in my Zen place, uh, through my bike. Do you have any like a uh, big highlight, uh, paths or like roads or sites that you've gone to with your bike? I did the tour de France once. Um, not the actual race. I wish I did the race. I'm not that good. But we, uh, a group of us went over to France and we rode through the Alps and we actually rode the route of the Tour de France. And just to give you an example, it took us three days to cover what the Tour de France covered in one. Wow. Is that the whole Tour de France? Um, it, is it, uh, so they go over multiple days, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. They go over multiple, multiple days. No, we were, we just went through the, uh, we, we went through the French Alps portion of it. it was all we did. That must've been beautiful. Oh God. It was so gorgeous. I would love to go back again. But, oh, I bet. But yeah. California is, California is, has got some awesome rides too. I mean, I can't, I can't complain about California. We, uh, there's something called the death ride, which is, pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It's, it's a, it's a killer ride. Uh, it's about 126 miles and you climb like 15,000 feet of, uh, terrain. So wow. you're going back and forth over the, uh, peaks in the, uh, the California right south of Tahoe and you climb over three different peaks. Um, and it, again, it's just beautiful country out there and they they block off the roads and they they get the entire road over to the bikes for that day and it's uh it's a heck of a ride but it's it's well worth it if you're willing to uh put yourself through the torture wow how many times have you done that only once so far (laughs) okay (laughs) more in the future maybe That's awesome. Yeah, I I follow this guy on Instagram. He's actually a professional photographer, um, but he's always going on these like hundred mile bike rides on the weekends, and he um, he films a lot of it too and puts it on Instagram as well. And so I just see him going over these rolling hills, and he's next to the ocean and going through the mountains. And yeah, it just reminds me of how much there is out there in California. And you can just get out there on the road on your bike and bike forever and see everything. So, like such variety. Seriously, there's just so much out there to see. And you can, I mean, you can bike all over this country without too much effort, assuming you got the tires that can handle it. 
but yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's really, it's, it's so nice. Cause you, the best thing about the bike riding I feel is the fact that you can stop anytime you want, anywhere you want, and you can snap a photo, you can sit down and eat a candy bar or whatever, and just, you know, enjoy the moment. You know, you don't have to be riding the entire time. And it's, it's just such a, it puts me in such a my Zen place when I get to go out there. So, yeah. I, and it's also a great, uh, physical hobby too. I mean, it puts you in, in, in good physical shape to actually be out there riding because it really not only works your muscles, it also works your, your lungs and your heart as well. There's my little plug for my health. That's great. Okay. So we're nearing to the end of our time. Um, are there any final thoughts that you wanted to leave our listeners with about um, your journey to become a scientist, what it means to be a scientist, doing the work you do, anything about the citrus you work on? I would like to tell the listeners to have an open mind, especially when it comes to GMOs, because they're not all scary. In fact, they're not scary at all. Be, be willing to accept new ideas and communicate with people. Don't just automatically say, oh, it's a GMO, it's bad. That kind of publicity is just what it is. It's publicity that's been put out there by people to make you scared. All right? Ask questions. Be open. You know, be willing to accept new ideas. That, that, that's what I'd like to leave the, the listeners with. Those are awesome messages. Thank you so much, Jim. And I look forward to tasting a lilac lime. I would really enjoy that <laughs> sometime. I'll keep my uh, eyes open in the stores. <laughs> yes. Editing for this episode was done by me, Nathan Sai. Logo design is by Miwa Shirai. Additional help came from Madison Sankovitz and Jesus Pena. This podcast is supported by Science for Citrus Health and the UC Riverside Graduate Student Association. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Bench, a production from SciComm at UCR. You can find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash SciComm UCR.